Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn in your Bibles, if you would. We'll finish up chapter 18 here in Luke's Gospel. Luke 18. And we'll pick up in verse 9 in a study that I've entitled, The Dangers of Disdain. And you're well, that's kind of a weird title. Disdain is feeling superior to someone else, or seeing someone else as unworthy, is one way to look at it, or seeing them unworthy of consideration or even respect, or you might even call it bigotry. It's kind of bigotry in a general sense. You're prejudiced against someone for a reason that you know that perhaps they don't. We're going to meet three different people, really three groups of people, you might say, in our time here in the remainder of chapter 18 that paint this picture of of three people who really got it wrong when it comes to their relationship with the Lord. And as with all negative examples, there's always a positive example for us to follow as well. And we certainly have that in this passage. But I want to encourage us. This right now is a time in, I think, our culture where it's really easy to have disdain for other people. Maybe it's a political issue. Perhaps it's the virus itself. Maybe it's somebody is, you know, working and you're not. There's lots of ways that you might be infected with this danger. And so I think it's really appropriate that we find ourselves in this particular part of Luke's gospel uh, during this time. So would you join me? We'll pray and we'll pick up in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. Father, we have come as your kids and we need you to speak to us. Lord, we want to hear your word. Jesus, you spoke the vast majority of the words contained in this passage. Uh, They are parables, Lord. They're stories whose plain meaning uh, means something else. You're trying to get us to think on something that's deeper than the story itself. And so we pray that you would speak to each of us as we need to hear. Uh, God, bless us with understanding and knowledge. And Lord, most importantly, change if it's needed in our own lives. We thank you for your word and pray that you would bless it now as we read it. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the first guy that we meet here is what you might call an IRS agent. No, most of you don't want to meet that guy, so good place to start as we head towards April 15th, amen? Verse 9, and also he spoke this parable to some... And here it is, here's the reason why, who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. You might want to underline that one. You might want to highlight that one in your Bible. I don't know if you guys ever do that, if you are ever tempted to look at other people and maybe judge them. Perhaps it's based on some physical characteristics, some words that they use, perhaps a job that they hold. Uh, Maybe they're that person who uh, 
you know, dares carry a new international version Bible into God's house. Perhaps it's something about them that you heard them say to where you just have a tendency to believe that you're more spiritual than they are. I know none of you would do that. But just maybe, the off chance. Again, Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So here's the story. Remember, parables are not direct teachings on anything. In other words, Jesus is not asking you to emulate and repeat these very things. He's using the story as a way to instruct us. The story itself gives plain meaning about something else. It's not the story of a tax collector so much as is what's up with the tax collector. What's up with the publican? Why is the Lord Jesus using this is a good question to ask yourself right now. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Pretty plain statement. They went to the temple to do what you would think they would do at the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now let's put this in perspective. Here comes these two men, and one is a Pharisee. The Pharisee would have been dressed in very fine robes, purple likely, dyed with a murex uh, snail shell dye, invented primarily by the Phoenicians, and so they're in this very rich, luxurious garments. He undoubtedly has a phylactery on his head, a leather band that's bound there, a little box, so that the word of God is in his frontlet. And on his wrist, he would have also worn additional phylacteries, leather bands all the way up to the elbows. He would have had his tassels hanging down from the four corners of his garment. If you looked at him, you would have thought, that dude's religious. The other guy has got his name tag, says, hi, I'm Fred, I'm from the IRS. And I just got done taking people's tax money for the evil Roman Empire. So do I have you yet? So you're going to look at these two guys, you're going to go, righteous, straight to hell, buddy. That would be your, your general thinking. It's like, How can this guy actually want to go to the temple? He collects taxes for Rome. He's got to be like, he's like two steps from hell's door. That's where he lives. But they both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I've always wondered about the, the language here. And it does seem to indicate in the original language, in the Greek translation here of this passage, that he was standing with himself because no one else was good enough. In other words, like everybody was over there, but he was over here. Because his club was too small for anybody else to be in it, he was actually, as far as he was concerned, the only one qualified to be with himself. Everybody else needed to be with the tax collector. And so he's with himself, and he prays this way or thusly. God, I thank you that I'm not like those guys over there. He's doing this out loud. He's saying, 
I'm over here, they're over there, I'm righteous, they're not. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. You see it? You ever get hung up there yourself? You ever been guilty of that? <laughs> Guy doesn't even wear a tie. No jacket. He's wearing boots inside a church and they're cowboy. We can get hung up in all kinds of stuff, can't we? Now, I want you to notice something. Does the Pharisee know a single thing about the people that he just singled out? And I mean, no. Does he know them? There's no indication that as Jesus tells his parable that the Pharisee knows anything about the people he's calling out. Doesn't know where they've come from, doesn't know where they are, doesn't know what they're doing. He knows nothing about them. But he has an opinion. He thinks he knows. Praise God, I'm not like them. I fast twice a week. Woo! I give tithes of all that I possess. I want you to notice something. Those things are outward manifestations, are they not? They're stuff that you can do, stuff that people could see. And the tax collector. I love this. Standing afar off. And I love this partly because it's painful and partly because I've been like this Pharisee. Would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He couldn't even look up. But beat his breast. Saying, God, be merciful unto me. A sinner. Which of those two people do you want to be? Which of those two people do you want to be? Because it's really clear which one Jesus is favoring here. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You've got an IRS agent. And again, if you're an IRS agent, forgive me in Jesus' name. You're very welcome here when we love you. I'm doing this to help people understand. So I'm using what we would know in our culture. It's an example. It's a metaphor. Now, why, why is this important to us? Because I think we're actually prone to do the same thing. We're prone to look at the outside. And we don't even take time to understand what's on the inside. We, we never go to that person and find out where they're at. I want you to notice what's said here. Jesus said one is justified, the other isn't. That means one's forgiven, the other is not. 
That means one is right with the Lord, the other is not right with the Lord. And ultimately, this term that's used, exalted, is exaltation as in heavenly glory. It means that one's going to heaven and, oops, one's not. And it's not the overtly religious person that's wearing the finery and the phylacteries. It is the person who does the work of Rome, but knows that they need the mercy of God. On church, it is so important for us to understand the distinction here because there is the farce of the Pharisaical. And what I simply mean by that is on the outside, you would have looked at that Pharisee and said, obviously, that guy's got it going on. Certainly got to be going to heaven. I mean, it's been an usher in the church for a week. He's doing these outwardly religious things. During this day and time, as sad as it may seem to us, instead of not letting the right hand know what the left does when they're giving, they would not only give publicly, but they would hire little orchestras to go in front of them, blowing their little horns, and they would take their coins and drop them, because in the courtyard they had these vast bronze vessels to where when you drop coins in them, they would make noise. And so they would intentionally drop the coins on the outer edge of the rim so that it would clank and everybody would look at man, look how much money he's dumping in. In our day and time, be like the person who's, you know, sitting up here with their checkbook going, oh, that's a big number. You see, Jesus is saying the tax collector whose job it was effectively to take money from people and give it to a wicked government was closer to God than the priest. That's an important thing for us to remember. Here's this man who on the outside, it looks like he's super religious. But really he was bigoted and blind. His phylactery didn't contain the word of God. It contained a piece of paper with words on it. Because the word of God makes it from paper to heart if it's really the word of God to you. It isn't just what you hold in your hand. It's what makes it from that page into the soft parts of a heart ready to receive it. But this guy, it was just words to him. It was just things he repeated. His life was a farce. He was a legalist. And so he knew what to do on the outside so that other people thought that he was holy. The word, the very word Pharisee means separated by belief and practice. And and so it's supposed to be what he believes and it goes into practice, but that wasn't what was going on. It was just still what he practiced. We have to be careful because it's easy to look down our noses at other people. It's easy to look at that person that's in a tiny little portion of their journey has been completed with the Lord. Oh, you know, hope he makes it. Hope she makes it. Did you notice what the tax collector asked for? Simple distinction, he asked for mercy. 
Mercy is the result, by the way, of grace. If you've received God's grace as unmerited favor, then you receive what you do not deserve. But in a very similar like kind, and sometimes confusedly so to some people, if you receive God's grace, then you also get his mercy. It's a package deal. You do not get what you do deserve or have earned. Do you understand? In other words, one is you getting a gift that you shouldn't have had in the first place. The other is you not getting the gift that you actually should have gotten, which is not good. This man asked for mercy. He said, Lord, Jesus, don't give me what I've earned. I not only know that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, I know I am a sinner. I know that I have gone astray. I know that I'm in trouble. I know I deserve to go to hell. But Lord Jesus, thank you that I'm not going there. He cried out for mercy. Sometimes I think that we don't stop long enough to remember that we need the mercy of the Lord every day. I need the grace of God too. But I need the mercy of the Lord. Lord, don't give me what I deserve. It surely wouldn't be good. You see, actually, those people exist in the church today, but it really is your internal character that counts. It's been said that your character is what God sees when no one else is looking. a pretty good definition. It's what's there when you strip away all the external things. It's what happens in the private moments. It's what you think when other people aren't around to see what's going on. You see, sometimes we wrongly judge people's outward things, just as Jesus will go on to say, look, you Pharisees are kind of like whitewashed sepulchers. They look beautiful on the outside. They're whitewashed, they're clean, they're beautiful, they're made out of marbles. They're gorgeous. Statuary. But the inside, not so much. It's dead men's bones in there. And so Jesus is telling this parable and he's saying, look at your character that counts. Let's face it, the publicans, the tax collectors had a horrible job. They literally sat at stations along the Roman roads, which if you know anything about the Romans, probably the most lasting thing was either the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, or the Roman road system, which allowed both the transit of the Roman army, but also goods and services to get to what we would call all of Europe. And so if you were using the Roman roads, meticulously laid out, graded, they were the world's first road system that actually had mile markers along them. So you knew where you were. They had way stations. They were the fine road of the day. Guess where they put the publicans? On the Roman road system. So if you were going to use the Roman roads, if you were going to try and take your goods someplace... You had to pay taxes. In other words, it was forced taxation. It's either that or you could go over the mountains or through the valleys or you could use the Roman bridges or the bypasses 
take the short route and beat everybody and be profitable. So they took advantage. So one could say this man's employment was actually taking money from other people and giving it to a government that was willing to do just about anything to oppress everyone. Now you would probably think in thinking that, it's like, wow, there's no way the tax collector is going to be saved. But if you look at what Jesus says, the outstanding characteristic of the Pharisee was his own self-reliance and self-righteousness. But how about the tax collector? He knew exactly who he was, and he was repentant. Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. That's repentance 101 right there. I know who I am. I know I don't deserve this. God forgive me, and please don't give me what I've earned. You see, it's your character that counts. It's what God sees. It's you saying, me saying, God, I'm a wreck. The Mosaic law required tithes of things like olive oil, corn, wine, cattle, sheep, whatever you had. And this guy's saying, well, you know, I tithe of everything. But the tax collector saying, God, I'm messed up. I'm a wreck. Please forgive me. God hears that prayer. But he's looking at what the Pharisee's saying. He's saying, I don't care if you're meticulously dividing up your oil. I really couldn't care less if every single raisin got counted and you made sure that I got my part. I don't care about your phylacteries. I don't care about your robe. I don't care about your crown. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is that your heart understands who I am. Good word for us, isn't it? That's the first two guys. Notice the second example. All three of them are the same. This one's very short. But it's very pointed. And then they also brought infants. That word infant can be small children. It could be youth. Actually, it could be anyone up to about the age of 12. So kids would be a better way to actually translate it in its fullest meaning. Brought kids to him. That he, that would be Jesus, might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, now I want you to notice who's got the disdain here. The disciples, the church leadership, the supposedly most on-fire people for the Lord, the disciples, saw it and they rebuked them. Here comes the kids. And the mighty disciples go, say, what? You're letting kids in the sanctuary? You, you, you get them out of here. 
And again, it doesn't mean you can't have, you know, some decorum and try and you know, make it so that we can hear the word and all those kind of things. That's a different issue. But this was like, er, no way in the world those kids are getting anywhere near Jesus. But Jesus called them to him. Who'd he call? The kids. Jesus is calling the kids to him. Again, this is a parable. And he said, let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Any of you fully grown in your walk with the Lord when you met Jesus? I didn't think so. I didn't see any hands go up. No. And such is the kingdom of God. It's made up of kids. It's made up of actually babies in Christ, according to the Apostle Paul initially. We were all once babies before we began to do some of the things that maybe now we do in the Lord. And so in the very same way, let them come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means even enter into it. And so he uses children as an example And it's interesting to me that, as we often see with the disciples, they got it wrong. They they were focusing on decorum. They were focusing on Jesus' schedule. They were focusing on, frankly, the wrong thing. And they were missing the right thing. They, They were looking at the situation going, well, you know, I mean, how are we supposed to have children in the sanctuary talking. And again, I'm not saying that we don't do everything that we can to try and have an atmosphere where we can hear the word of God. We must do that. But when you get to the place where you value rules over kids, you're in a rough spot. That's true both physically and it's true spiritually as well. The church is full of babes in Christ. The church is full of people who are just beginning or maybe have not yet begun their walk with the Lord. And so what do you expect people to be when they have not yet begun to walk with the Lord? You think they might be a little bit like the world? Maybe wear something to church that you probably wouldn't wear? Maybe say something that you probably wouldn't say. Do something you probably wouldn't do with someone who's walked with the Lord for a long time. You think that might possibly happen? I can tell you absolutely not only does it happen, it's a very common occurrence. Not everybody's in the same place of growth. We should not keep little children from the Lord, and we should not keep big kids from the Lord either. People who are just beginning their walk with the Lord, we have to learn to be gentle and kind and understanding and loving. And every once in a while, we may have to put up with something that we would like to be a different way for the sake of those who are children.
This is the Lord. It's his heart. Newborn babes spiritually or newborn babes, period. These ladies, they had some serious mad mom skills. They knew who to take their kids to. Take them to Jesus, amen? Suffer them not that they should come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. I've learned if there's a handful of really hard lessons that I myself have had to learn over my time, my journey with the Lord. It's like everyone is not where I am. Not everyone's in the same state of spiritual growth. Because if that's how you approach the world, if that's how you approach the church, then everything is a problem to you. You just start looking at stuff, well, you know, that's a problem. You kind of have to love how this all pans out. Because as Jesus sees these, these kids, he's happy. The disciples are thinking, that's going to be work. It's always going to be work to see people get from childhood to adulthood. It's true with your own children. It's true with other people's children. And it's true with us as members of the body of Christ. We can't lose sight of that. Otherwise, the rules will govern the church. We'll end up with all kinds of rules and no changed hearts. Notice the third example that we have here. And I think it's the one that is the hardest really to apply. But it's also the one that's most universally true. And before we even read from verse 18 on, notice this. Jesus nowhere here in this parable says that money is bad. He doesn't say that being rich is bad. He he doesn't say that if you have extra resources, more than the average person, that somehow uh, you're unredeemable. It doesn't say anything like that. Why? Because it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It is not money itself that's evil. It's not wealth that's evil. It's what you do with it. It's how you handle it. Is it a God or is it something that God still controls in your life for his glory? So get that out of the way. Verse 18. And now a certain ruler, and that word there is curious, it could be master, it could be lord, it could be doctor, it could even be rabbi in some cases. A certain ruler asked, in other words, this is an educated person who happens to also be quite wealthy, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Would you please circle the word do? Because that is the question. What do I have to do? What do I do? I got to do something. This is the basic function of religion without relationship. It's what do I do to get close to God? And the answer is you can't do anything to have a right relationship with the Lord because even the faith that you have to believe is a gift from God. 
So in that sense, you don't do anything. You believe on the only begotten Son of God. That brings you into a relationship with the Lord. And then the doing that you do is for the right reason. But this guy obviously doesn't get that yet. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Simple question, but very complex. Because the word that Jesus uses here means completely, utterly, totally good. There is no evil whatsoever. Jesus is saying to him something he would have understood. Why do you call me perfectly good? No one is good, that is, except God. No one but one. God is good. You know the commandments, Jesus says, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. All the commandments that have to do with your interaction with other people while you're here on earth, you know those? He said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, well, okay. Of course, Jesus knew if that was true or not true. Probably wasn't true. He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Here's the test. And it's the same test for all of us. It may be with money, it may be with power, it may be with possessions, it may be with relationships, it may be some type of addictive behavior, it could be almost anything, but whatever it is that is mastering you today or has mastered you in the past, those are the things that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, says to you, leave those things behind, give them up, come and follow me. So this is a discipleship question. Not only is there disdain that this man shows for the prospect of having to give up everything, but he is willing to trade his money for his eternity. That'll never be a good trade. That's why Jesus will further say, what profits it a man if he were to gain the entirety of the whole world and lose his soul? You still lack one thing. But when he heard this, that's the man, he became very sorrowful. And then we're told why. He was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? Notice he doesn't say it's impossible. He says it's hard. And he could have put in there, how hard is it for a drug addict? Or how hard is it for a senator? How hard is it for someone with power? How hard is it for someone who's a business owner that's prosperous? He could have literally put all kinds of things in there. But these people would have understood this parabolic statement this way. It's like, man, this is something that nobody wants to give up once they have it. 
I mean, I don't know how many of you would actually like to have less as opposed to more. I think most of us would have liked to have more. Nothing even wrong with that, ultimately, as long as the Lord has control of all of it. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? They're all looking at us like, man, we all want to become rich. Who can be saved if, if being rich is bad? And he said, things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And then Peter, you can always trust Peter to come up with something. And it's usually foot and mouth. See, we've left all and followed you. James and John and Andrew and I, man, we had, we had the hot fishing business in Galilee. Look how awesome we are. It's kind of the way he's going here. It's like, we did it. You can do it too. They're like, hoorah. And then he said to them, and that them includes the disciples, by the way. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or his parents, brothers, wife, children. Again, this is not preaching on abandoning your family so you can go into ministry. It's simply saying anything and everything that you might be asked to give up by the Lord will be well worth it. For the sake of the kingdom of God, not because you just don't like your spouse, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus makes the contrast here, and it's the one thing that matters to every last one of us. What's it going to cost me? Short answer, everything. Everything. It's going to cost you everything to follow Jesus. Not because he's necessarily going to have you give up everything or give away everything. This is not a teaching by Jesus that everyone should go sell everything. This is everyone has to have the heart that if God asked it of you, you will do it. Might include giving things up. God might ask you to go in the mission field. Or are you going to stay? God might ask you to give some of your money to the poor. Might ask you to give much of it to Who knows? But whatever he asked of you, it will always be worth it. Always. Whatever it is, it will always be a good trade. It will never be a bad trade. But this guy could not get that principle. So like, I can't do it. I love money more than I love you, Lord. And I specifically love all the money that I have more than I love you, Lord, is what he's really saying. He was accepting the fact that Jesus was God. He's basically saying, you're, you're, you're eternally good. But he says, nah, eh, I know that, but I'm going to keep the money instead. Wow. Here's the problem with that thinking. It leads you to a place that's very tough to recover from. 
basically you then have to make the following assumption that you're good enough. You're good enough as you are. You're okay just the way you are. In other words, you have to check your own motivation. Jesus is saying, look, I'm looking at your heart. I really don't need your money. Can we just clear this up right now? God doesn't need your money. It's actually already his. He already owns it. He owns everything. The whole world is his and the fullness of it. And so what he's actually doing is saying, how's your heart doing, Jeff? For this rich guy, he was really challenged because his heart was so set on the money that he would not follow the Lord. He was okay keeping the commandments, but don't ask me to give up my cash. This is a heart issue. That's all it is. So for each of us, God is actually checking our heart. And here's how you know if you're okay. You are willing to put your money where your mouth is. If you say, look, the Lord is good. I know this is you. Then you have to be willing to give him your life. All of it. Not part. Every last bit. That's all of you for all of him. He's promised to give you all of himself. He wants all of you in return. Not most of you. Not part of you. Not he'll take your religious works and all the things that you do. He doesn't just want you, and please don't be offended by this, he does not want Sunday-only Christians. I recognize not everybody can spend every day in church, and I'm not even asking you to do that. But there are a lot of people who look at church as obligatory. I come to church because I know I need to do it, and somebody will see me there, and then somebody will think that I'm holy because I went to church. Don't let that be you. You come because Jesus has all of you, and you are giving all of yourself to him. It's a transaction. It's a trade. You swapped out your old life for his new life. And it requires that you be all in. You have to put your money where your mouth is. In other words, it's a reality check. But for this guy, Jesus uses an example, and we'll wrap it up with this. He says, look, it's easier for a rich man to have his camel be on and pass through the eye of a needle. A lot of people have looked at this over the years and have gone, well, you know, you can't get a camel through a needle's eye and that kind of stuff. It actually was speaking of a gate within a gate. And if you look in this photo, this one's from Jerusalem. It's up near the Damascus Gate. There happens to be a set of stairs in between the two gates right now. But there were normally in biblical times either a right turn or a second set of gates, and in the first gate, there was a gate within the gate, or a secondary gate adjacent to it that required that at night, once the city was locked up, that if you were going to come in or you were going to go, you had to pass through the eye of needle. The only way the camel could go through the eye of the needle gate, whether it was a small gate in the bigger gate, or whether it was a gate adjacent to it as this one is, as you had to do what? You had to unburden the camel, 
You had to take everything off of it, and the camel would have to get down towards its knees. It would have to have bended knees, and it'd have to be unburdened. It's easier for a rich man. You see, it's not easy for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven if he wants to take all of his junk with him. The rich man has to say, I'm going to unload my camel. I'm going to bend my knee. I'm going to get rid of the stuff that keeps me from entering in. You see, because you couldn't take the stuff in. The camel couldn't have all the golden goblets and sacks of money and, you know, giant bags of grapes or whatever was on the camel. It all had to come off. And so he gave him a, a, a test. He said, why don't you take all this stuff and, and give it away, distribute it to the poor. Why don't you do that? Why don't you give it away? And so the question comes for us today as we wrap up. Here's the object lesson. You and I are right there in that eye of the needle. What will you refuse to give up? What burden are you going to continue to carry? What is it that you're going to trade because you can't take it with you, so you're going to keep that heaped on your life so that you can't get through into the kingdom? That's the question. It might be a question of sanctification. For some of you today, it might be a question of salvation. It might be the first step in your relationship with the Lord. But for everyone, the question is the same. Are you willing to unburden and bend? Are you willing to say, Lord, you can have it all? Whatever you want, take it. And if i got to get down on my knees to, to crawl through that gate, I'll do it. Because there isn't anything you can pack on the camel of your life that is worth you losing your eternity. Not all your money, not your relationships, not your power, not your passions, not your possessions. There's nothing. If God asks you to take everything off the camel and crawl in, take everything off the camel and crawl in. It's going to be worth it. Here's the good news. Very often the Lord picks up the stuff on the outside of the gate that you took off the camel, and once you start walking with him, he loads your camel back up with some blessings. Amen? So if you want your camel to be heaped with blessings, do it after you go into the inside of the city. But to get there, say, Lord, strip it all away if you have to. I'll take everything off. I will bend my knee, and then you can bless me. That's God's plan for us. And so we can disdain these things. We can say, oh, I'm not going to do it. We can look at the tax collector and say, not him. I'm more righteous than that. We can look at the kids and go, oh, they were talking. Or we can look at the camel and go, man, that guy's camel's loaded. 
Wish I had a camel like that. Go down to the Torrance Camel dealership and get yourself like a big camel. Jesus is saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you need it, I'll give it to you. If you don't need it and I take it, it's going to be okay. Let's live that way. Let's live unburdened and knees bent. Because we need that right now. I know I do. I know I need to live like that. That's why this says nothing's impossible with God. And so let's leave the impossible things in the hands of the God who can make anything possible. Let's unburden our camels and let's bend our knees so that we might be blessed. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer? If you need prayer after service, our prayer team's available in the prayer room. If you've never given your life to Jesus today, that's the first step of blessing, is to say yes to his offer of grace. Uh, if you've come today expecting us to receive an offering because of COVID, we will not be doing that. We will have people at the doors with uh, a place for you to give your tithes and offerings as well, or the tithe boxes. But God has been good to us. So let's give him everything. Let's unburden our lives so we can be blessed as we kneel in prayer to him. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you for taking the junk off the camel of my life so that I could enter in. But Lord, I pray for anybody today that's come and they're weighted down. Lord, they've got sacks of stuff on their life and you've asked them to get rid of it, but they won't. They think they need it, but they don't. And so, God, would you please just touch us? We need you in these days to be the first, the foremost, the forefront of our lives. And, Lord, we admit that sometimes you're last. You're not first. Lord, help us to make you first. Consider you first in all things. And so, Lord, we love you. We're so grateful that you forgive us when we ask. And so, Lord, we repent of those things we've drug around. Lord, help us to be unburdened and blessed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.